Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are going to read verses 1 through 10, even though our focus for this morning's message is verses 7 through 10, because we did 3 through 6 last week. So hear then the word of the living God from Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's the, the hardback black-covered Bible in the pew in front of you, you can turn to page 858, and you'll find Matthew 5 there on page 858. All right? So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Father, we pray now that you would give us an understanding of this passage, an understanding of this blessing, that we would feel the security and comfort that Jesus Christ has provided when he secured our blessing on the cross and in the resurrection. We pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened and rebuked and convicted and transformed. We pray for sinners here who are not yet saved, like the saved sinners here. We pray that they would repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And we pray that in all of these things, you would be exalted. So make our hearts soft and humble and teachable and lowly and help us to tremble at your word. This is a high and holy calling, what you're going to call us, what you're teaching us here and what you're calling us to be. And so we pray that we would not only feel the challenge, but the encouragement and strength that your word and spirit give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God called us and continues to call Christians and those who aren't Christian into Christianity. God calls Christians to know enjoy and obey him to know him to enjoy him and to obey him and so paul says in ephesians 4 that we are called to walk worthy of the calling that we have received christians want to walk worthy of their calling we have been called to christ we have been called to holiness we have been called to righteousness we have been called to faith we have been called to obedience we have been called to love we have been called to the kingdom of heaven and we are to walk worthy of this calling. We understand as Christians that walking worthy of this call is our greatest joy, happiness, and blessing in this life and also into all eternity. We get that, but there's a problem. There's a few problems. One, one problem we have is there seems to, we have a confusion problem. There seems to be confusion among pastors and Christians today as to what our calling is. What is the calling of a pastor? What is the calling of Christians? There's a separate discussion. What is the calling of the church as an institution? I'm leaving that to the side for right now and maybe for the sermon. We'll see. But what is the calling of a pastor and what is the calling of Christians? If we're to walk worthy of the calling. So one prominent pastor theologian has said recently in a sermon, look, I know people have suffered injustice. I get that. It's a fallen world. But, also know, but I also know the Bible is explicit. If you are a preacher, regardless of what people's social condition is, you have one job, and that is to warn them of wickedness and the coming judgment of God. That's your one job. And in that same sermon, he proceeds to say uh, that the social justice is not the gospel. And I want to agree with that. Social justice, depending on how you define it, but social justice, public righteousness, things you're doing, the good works you do for others, that's not the gospel. You're saved by grace alone through what? Faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, according to the scriptures alone, as our final authority, right? 
Yes, so no qualms there. The social gospel or the social gospel is a false gospel. And social justice, if you say that you need to do that to be converted and be saved, that's a false gospel. That's not true. Social justice is not the gospel in that regard. So he says here, preachers have one job. That's to warn people of wickedness and the coming judgment so that they would be converted, right? So that they would repent and trust in Christ. That's their one job. The problem with that is that this same preacher has said in another sermon last year, the doctrine, this doctrine of sanctification defines our pastoral ministry. We are for the sanctification of God's people. Progressive, lifelong work. It's why we do what we do. As the believer is sanctified, as the believer is increasingly exposed to the word of God and virtues in, God, and virtues in godly examples, the spirit of God begins to reduce the seduct- seductiveness of the world, begins to reduce the desires of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and they're replaced by an increased love for the Lord and an increased love for obedience, an increased longing for holiness and virtue and aspirations to the will of God and the honor of the Lord. Then he says this about pastoral ministry. This is the work to which we are called. You cannot be content that they're there. You cannot be content that they like your preaching. You should feel pain in your soul if they are not being manifestly sanctified. So what he's saying here is that the preacher's job is to make sure not just that they're converted, but that they're what? Continually what? Sanctified. So one time, at one time he says, they have one job, warn them of wickedness, call them to repent so that they're saved. And then in this one he says, your, your ministry is defined by their transformation. You can't be content that they're there. You can't just be content that you warn them of their wickedness and then they got saved and now they're converted and then they're in the church. You have to go further than that, preacher. So we're getting mixed messages from the same preacher here in this case. Well, which one is it? There's confusion here. What is the pastor's call? I would say that the second one is probably true. Sanctification is part of the pastoral ministry, which means you need to warn them of wickedness. You need to tell non-Christians that they need to repent and believe in Christ to be saved. But then from there, you need to keep teaching them to obey everything Christ what? Commanded. That's, that's, that's the job not only of a pastor, he's, his job is to equip the saints to do that, to oversee the church and to preach and teach and to model mature Christianity um, for people's conversion and transformation all the way until glorification. That's the job of the preachers to equip and oversee the church, the pastor's job, not just the preacher, the main preaching pastor, but all the pastors in a church. That's their job. So it includes conversion, it just doesn't, it's not limited to that. So we have a confusion problem. And it's not only for preachers, it's for the church. I mean, if this is what the preacher's job is, some Christians might think, so my job in the culture and in the community is only to preach the gospel. That is not what this text says. That is your main job in making disciples. No one becomes a disciple without hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the what? Word of Christ. And if they don't hear the gospel, they won't, they won't be, believe, they won't become disciples. And yet, that is, though that's the primary focus, that is not the exclusive call. When you make the part the whole, that's what we'd call, that's a logical fallacy. When you make the part a piece of the puzzle, the whole puzzle, you get a distorted puzzle. And that is false. That's just not right. It's not true. All right? So we have a confusion problem. Christians, pastors, preachers, you are called to preach the gospel, warn people of wickedness so that they would be converted, and then you are called to disciple them and teach them to obey everything Christ commanded, sanctification, transformation, until they die, or until you die. And Christian, here's my call to you, not as an institutional church, but, well, actually, I wouldn't even mind this as an institutional church, but Christian, your job is to make disciples, love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and make disciples, that's the apex and the point of loving them, by giving them the gospel, but then doing everything else as well, loving them as you would love yourself which of course is primarily the gospel, but not exclusively. All right, so we have a confusion problem. You guys tracking with me so far? We also have a confidence problem. When you read these characteristics of the Christian, of the blessed one, of the one who has the kingdom of God, is it encouraging or discouraging when you find out, are you, I mean, how merciful have you been lately? How much are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? How humble are you? How poor in spirit are you? How have you been doing in mourning? How, are you, how pure are you in heart? 
How peacemaking, how actively, how active have you, have you been in peacemaking? How often have you been persecuted for righteousness? A list like this can become discouraging, can't it? Like, oh, I don't live up to this. Like, this is not encouraging. This is discouraging. So we have a confidence, confidence problem. Can we actually live up to the calling and walk worthy of the calling we have received? Can we actually be, can we actually be who God is calling us to be before him, before our church family, before our neighbors, and before the nations? Can we do it? The blessed one, the blessed one, is, does it, right? I mean, here, Jesus is saying the blessed one is poor in spirit. He's humble. He's gentle. He mourns. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's merciful. He's pure in heart. He's a peacemaker, and he's persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, what does it, let's, we got to take a step back and say, what does it mean by blessing here? What does it mean that they're blessed? Happy. And this happiness, what's the opposite of blessed in the Bible? Cursed. At the core of the curse is being cut off from God. When you're cut off from God, eventually you're going to die because the wages of sin is death. You will die. And you will also be cut off from happiness because happiness is found in God himself. So the blessed one is the one who gets that Abrahamic blessing because the world was cursed. Genesis 3 through 11, curse, 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 curse. Five times, curse. And then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, blessing, 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 blessing. Five times. The Abrahamic blessing reverses the curse that we have in our sins. And when you have that Abrahamic blessing, which is in Christ Jesus, you are blessed. And this passage then characterizes you. You are someone, here's how I summarize it. You are someone who desires, you desire surpassing righteousness and you do public righteousness. That's who God made you to be. Now, um, I have to show you why, why I'm getting this from the passage before we jump into our four Beatitudes. So let me... Remind you, is this really talking about public righteousness or is this talking about your personal sanctification, your, just your own personal growth? Some of you said both. Let me quote D.A. Carson. I quoted him last week. I'll quote him again on Matthew 5, 6 about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It is better to take this righteousness simultaneously, or take this righteousness, this justification righteousness, and simultaneously personal righteousness and justice in the broadest sense. These people hunger and thirst not only that they may be righteous, namely personally holy, uh, that they may wholly do God's will from the heart, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Satisfied with neither personal righteousness nor alone nor social justice alone, they cry for both. In short, they long for the advent of the messianic kingdom. What they taste now whets their appetites for more. Ultimately, they will, they will be satisfied without qualification only when the kingdom is consummated. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they, they want surpassing righteousness in their own life, which means they want to be justified before God by faith alone and Christ alone. And then they want that personal righteousness to transform their lives, but they're not content there. They want it in their families. They want it in their neighborhood. They want it in their community. They want it in their church. They want it among the churches. They want it in the world. They want it everywhere. They're not content. They're, they mourn over unrighteousness everywhere. So, we, so those who are blessed are those who desire surpassing righteousness everywhere, personally and pervasively, and then they do public righteousness. My second point, the the point today is that they do public righteousness. But let me just recap last week by saying this. Let's go back to verse three. Just look at your Bibles here. I'm gonna show you how they connect. Three, four, five, and six, how they connect. If you're poor in spirit, how does this all relate to surpassing righteousness? If you're poor in spirit, that keeps you desperate, right? You're not not self-reliant. You're not self-sufficient. So you're pleading with God for strength for your spirit, for your soul. You're regularly seeking and trying to abide in Christ. That's gonna make you wanna do things. It's gonna make you desire things. If you're mourning, you're mourning because of your sin against God and the sins of others against God. So mourning over sin and unrighteousness will make you long for public righteousness and personal righteousness. And then the next one is humble. If you're humble and gentle in verse five, then because because you love others and you're not trying to protect yourself, you can't only desire righteousness for yourself, you must seek the good of others, which means you long for other people to experience righteousness, right? Right? if you're humble. So these things all flow into righteousness. Now these, these Beatitudes are broken into two groups. 
3 through 6, and 7 through 10. 3 through 6, they all begin with the letter P in Greek, or pi. You guys know 3.14. The letter pi, or P. Um, the first four verses, 3, 4, 5, 6, they all begin with that letter. So they're all grouped together. And then the second six or second four are grouped together. They both end with what word? Verse, chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. And then look at verse 10. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. So you have the two groups ending with what? Righteousness. It's about righteousness, personally, pervasively, and publicly, and surpassingly over the Pharisees' righteousness as you get, when you get down in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so these two groups are around the theme of righteousness, and the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon is, seek first the kingdom of God and the surpassing righteousness so that you possess and enter the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the point of the whole Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, months. Here's the main goal today, okay? If we have a confusion problem and a confidence problem, God wants to help us. And here's the word from the Lord today. It's this. Realize, brothers and sisters, realize Jesus blessed you and made you a person who does public righteousness so that you shine his gospel light in this dark world, okay? You need to realize, if you have a confidence problem, can I really live up to this? This is a tall order. Can I really live faithfully the Christian life? Here's the encouragement that God's giving you today. You need to realize that Jesus has blessed you and he has made you someone at the core of your character and your nature, this new nature. Jesus has made you someone who does public righteousness so that you shine his gospel light in this dark world. Jesus made you that. Isn't that a blessing? That Christ makes us what we can't make ourselves? That he blesses us when on our own we deserve the curse? That's the blessing of this passage. This passage is encouraging. We talked about four marks of the happy person last week. We're gonna look at four marks today of those who do public righteousness, okay? Four marks here of those who do public righteousness. Look at verse one. Verse one. It says this, I'm sorry, not verse one, verse seven, point one. Blessed are the what? Merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I'm gonna give you a different translation here. Blessed are, or point number one is this, the compassionate do public righteousness, or the merciful. The compassionate or merciful do public righteousness. That's point number one. Jesus made you to be compassionate in doing public righteousness. How does the world say it, how do religious people without Jesus say this beatitude? Remember I was giving you guys false beatitudes last week? I'm gonna do some false beatitudes this week. Here's how the world might say it. Happy are the compassionate for all are victims and there isn't really sin, everyone is good and so no one is accountable or responsible for so-called sins. So happy are the compassionate because you should be compassionate to everyone because no one's personally responsible for sin. You see that mentality in the world? Here's how the world and the religious say it. Happy are the busy or preoccupied, for though they miss those in need, they get their task list done and keep their important priorities for the day intact. Say that one more time. Happy are the busy or preoccupied, for though they miss those in need, they get their task list done and keep their priorities for the day intact. Here's a religious way, another religious lie of saying it. Blessed are the perceptive, for though they see those in need, they see the real cause of the person's need, and it's completely their fault. Plus, if I help them, they may use my further help to further their sins and bad habits. Blessed are the perceptive, for they see the real cause of the person's need, and it's completely their fault. Plus, they may use the help for further sin and bad habits. That is not what Jesus says. What does he say? Blessed are the what? Merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does it mean to be merciful or compassionate? What does it mean to be compassionate? The Greek word means this, or in the the Greek dictionary it says this. This is pertaining to being concerned about people in their need. So here's some synonyms. Merciful, sympathetic, Compassionate, merciful, sympathetic, compassionate. It's people 
who are concerned, who care about people in their need. They see people in their need and they cannot turn away. They can't shut it down. They can't look away. They care. They sympathize. They're compassionate. They're merciful. They're concerned. When they see a need, their first response is care and concern. Not judgment, not fault-finding, not indifference. Are you guys convicted? I'm convicted, just to let you know. It's kindness. Care leads to kindness and forgiveness. Being merciful doesn't mean you ignore sin. It doesn't mean you discount personal responsibility. It doesn't mean you don't rebuke people for their sin. Is God merciful? Amen. Does God ignore our sin? Does he not rebuke us? Does he just pretend it's not there and just have compassion that's blind? Is our sin our fault before God, yes or no? Yes. And is God still compassionate to us? Yes. Does God's compassion sometimes enable us to sin? Do we sometimes use it? Do we sometimes use God's grace as an excuse to sin more? Yes. Does God still pour out grace, yes or no? Yes. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's holy, but he's compassionate. In Matthew 6, 2 through 4, Jesus says, whenever you mercy, whenever you, it says, it's, actually in Matthew 6, it's translated in your CSB as whenever you give to the poor. But that's the same word of, of doing mercy. Whenever you exercise benevolent will, whenever you give charitably, whenever you um, have actions that come out of your mercy, he says, whenever you give to the poor, Matthew 6, 2 through 4. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus saw crowds. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Is it partly their fault? Are they sinners? Yes, but he still looks at them with what? Compassion. In Matthew 14, 14, Jesus went to the shore. He saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. When he sees someone demon-possessed, is demon possession partly their fault? It could be. Certainly could be, your sin, right? Uh, Matthew or Ephesians 4, 25, if you, was it 4, 25 or 26? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let go, the sun go down on your anger. Giving a foothold or giving an opportunity to who? Satan, the devil. So yes, a lot of times your, your demon possession can be, your demon oppression can be because of your sin. Oftentimes it is, not always, but it can be. And yet Jesus, does he still cast out demons even though it might be your fault partially? Does he still have compassion? Yes. Remember the, the tax collector and the Pharisee? For those of you who were not here last week, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector praying. The Pharisee was talking to God about all his good things. And he says, I thank you, I'm not like this dirty, evil tax collector. And the tax collector is on his face and he says, God, be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. And was God merciful? Yes, he was. And God says, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, let me be very clear to you. I have the greatest news you'll ever hear. It might not feel that great, but it is the greatest news you'll ever hear. God is merciful. Amen. God knows your sin. He knows it better than you do. He's more disgusted than you are, and yet his love and compassion overflow to you, and he wants you to come to him. He cares for you. He loves you. Yeah, he'll hold you responsible, but he will forgive you and change you. He will bless you and transform you so that you receive mercy, so that you want mercy, and so that you become merciful and compassionate. So if you're not a Christian, God is not saying fix yourself first and then I'll love you. He's saying come to me now. I love you. I will forgive you. I sent my son to die for your sins and rise from the dead. Come to me now and I will help you. I will love you. Amen. God is merciful. So if you're not a Christian, he's not a taskmaster. He wants you to turn to him. I'm looking at my time here, I got three more Beatitudes. I'm just gonna summarize this. You know the, the um, man, I wanna tell this story. It's gonna be like 10 minutes, five minutes. No, no, don't, don't tempt me. <laughs> don't tempt me. Um, Okay, so, so you, you know the story in Matthew 18 about forgiving each other and Peter and then like church discipline and then forgive 70 times seven, right? Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? 
And Jesus says 70 times seven. And then he tells a story about a man who owed, let me see if I got my math here right. Let me just give the, the current day math. A man who owed, um, a man owed his master $12,849,000,000,000. That's what Jesus says, 5,000 talents. That's what it is in today's terms. This man owed his master $12,849,000,000,000. And he was saying, please, and he's like, I'm gonna throw you in jail until you pay every penny. And he's like, no, please, please forgive me. Like, please, no, I'll, I'll pay you back, I promise. I promise I'll pay you back $12,849,000,000. I promise I'll pay you back, just give me more time. Don't, don't do this to me. And then it says, the master had compassion on him and forgave his debt. It's his fault. He's a sinner. But he had compassion on him and forgave his debt. And then that servant had a, had a fellow servant who owed him, let me see here, who owed him oh, $21,415. Is that a lot of money? If someone owed you $21,000, is that important to you? <laughs> right? $21,000 is not chump change. Your Coworker owes you $21,000. And so he asks his, he tells his friend, hey, you owe me, pay me. And the guy, same thing, gets on his knees, please have compassion on me, please have mercy, like, I'll, I'll pay you back, I promise. And he says, no, I'm gonna call the cops, you're gonna be put in jail until you pay back the penny, the last, every last cent. 21 grand is a lot of money, right? You owe me that. And then, the fellow, fellow workers go back to the master and say, hey, that servant you forgave $12,849,000,000? He just threw his fellow servant in for 21 grand. So the master came back to him and said, you wicked servant, if I forgave you $12,849,000,000 of debt, you couldn't forgive him 21 grand? And then he threw him into jail until he paid the last penny. One had compassion, the other one didn't. And Jesus says here, say, say, so it is with you. If you don't forgive from your heart, you will not be forgiven because you owe God $12 trillion, $12 trillion, And if someone sins against you, your family member, your neighbor, your church member, your friend, if they sin against you, a group of people sin against you and you can't forgive them, then God can't forgive you, won't forgive you. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Cursed are the merciless, for they will not be shown mercy. They won't. When you see people in need, Jesus has made you a merciful person. And why are we compassionate? Why, why are we blessed? Because we receive compassion. God doesn't give us compassion because I was compassionate. He gave me compassion, and that's why I am compassionate. And if I refuse to be compassionate, I'm proving that I never received what? His compassion. So you're blessed because you will have compassion from God now and on judgment day. When you stand before God with all your sins right there before him on judgment day, you know what God will have on you? Compassion. Amen. How is compassion tied to public righteousness? Compassion and mercy towards others results in us moving towards them. It's public. This is why it can't be private. You can't just care in your heart for the poor. You can't just care in your heart for the oppressed. If you really have genuine compassion, it moves you towards them, not away from them. I don't know if you feel this. I feel this, and maybe I'm just too, um, I don't know if charismatic is the right word, too experiential. But when I drive across, when I drive exit the freeway and I see a poor person there and I turn away and make sure I don't make eye contact, that's the floodgate for compassion, right? If you make eye contact, compassion is gonna flow. There, you know, if, I, if I could keep, keep away from eye contact, I'll be okay. And I do that, I've done that. And when I do, I could feel my heart getting harder. I'm not, I'm not unchanged by that exchange. Something is, there's a transaction going on in my heart in that moment. Compassion moves you towards people, not away from them. It can't merely be personal, it has to go public. It has to be seen in actions. Your attitude actually comes out in actions. So do we praise God for his mercy? We do. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So brothers and sisters, cultivate your heart for the poor, the needy, the marginalized, and the oppressed. Realize that the biggest need 
that their biggest need, their biggest need, their oppression, and their marginal, their, their biggest oppression, and their biggest marginalizer, marginal, marginalizer, the one who marginalizes them, who's their biggest enemy? Satan and sin, right? So, Satan attacks our neighbors, our members, and the nations. Sin attacks our neighbors, our members, and the nations. So see yourself in their need every time and be prepared to care for them in some tangible, public way. Church family, use the Benevolence Fund for benevolence. I'll make that announcement now. There's a Benevolence Fund at the end. I won't forget now. There's a Benevolence Fund after Lord's Supper. Give to the Benevolence Fund and insist that we use it for benevolence, for mercy, for care. We need members to volunteer for the food box ministry. We have a food box ministry. We have neighbors in Bellflower who have needs of food, have food needs and financial needs where we could relieve them of food. We just need members to take up that mercy ministry. Speak to the broader church around the world, Christians around the world, the, 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 the universal church. Realize that even in the debate over social justice and ethnic harmony, or other issues like abortion, LGBT disagreements. The Blessed One always engages in, this, in these disagreements from a heart of compassion and not a heart of competition for winning an argument. Even those you disagree with need compassion. Amen. Because if they're deceived, if I'm deceived and they're arguing with me, I need God's mercy. And if they're deceived, they need God's mercy. So we must engage each other with compassion. If you're a family member, be merciful to your family members. If you're a church family member, be merciful to your church family. Be merciful to your neighbors and even to those you disagree with. If you're feeling weak and you feel like, I am not merciful, brothers and sisters, God's mercy is more. It's more than your sin and weakness. God will transform you to be more merciful. Go to the merciful Christ. Christians in our society will exercise compassion and mercy. Christians have to care about society's needs our neighbor's needs, really. But society, if I'm speaking to the world, the world needs to hear this. World, listen up to Bethany Baptist Church. Christians will exercise compassion in society, but we will do it according to God's foundation, God's word, God's ways, and God's goals, and not what is popular in the culture. Sometimes it is popular, great. Sometimes it's not, doesn't matter. Christians will care for their neighbors. We will care for our society. And we're telling our society, we will care for you. But we will do it from God's word and Christ's ways for his glory and your good, your ultimate good, and not according to what's popular or politically correct. So, brothers and sisters, realize Jesus blessed you and made you a person who does public righteousness so that you shine his gospel light in this world. Let's go to the second one. Let's see if we could move quicker. I'm not sure if we can. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How, do this, how does the world and religious say it? Here's they, the way they say it. Blessed or happy are those, so he, uh, blessed are, or hap, and happy are those who follow their own heart, for it will always help them fulfill all their dreams. You hear that in the world? Happy are those who follow their heart, whatever their heart says, because it will fulfill all their dreams. Wrong. The world might also say, happy or blessed are those who have their own standard of purity, for they shall find their God, for they shall find the God they're looking for in the mirror. If you have your own standard, you have your own God. You are your own God. Here's the religious way of messing this up. Happy are the pure in doctrine and practice before their tribe of religious people, for they will be called faithful. At least my people call me faithful because I'm pure in doctrine and practice before my tribe of religious people. That's not what God says. Blessed are the what? Pure where? In what? In heart. This is not speaking of perfect purity in the Pauline sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and there is none righteous, no, not one. That's true. It's speaking of the blessed one who experiences the work of Christ in their lives. The whole sermon is about Christ fulfilling and making us his kingdom people. So when he talks about pure in heart, here's what Craig, uh, Craig Blomberg says. The pure in heart exhibit a single-minded devotion to God that stems from the internal cleansing created by following Jesus. 
Holiness is a prerequisite for entering God's presence. The pure in heart will pass the, the pure in heart pass this test. So they will see God and experience intimate fellowship with him. It's not perfect purity. Here's let me give you an encouragement, okay? Do you feel like you're not pure in heart sometimes? Here let me, have you experienced this? We're going to do this with communion today. This cup is the what? This cup is the what in my blood? The new Say it again. This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. Here's the, let me read to you the new covenant. This is going to encourage you about being pure in heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. God says in the new covenant promise, I will, hear this, God speaking to you, Christian. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. How many of your impurities? All your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is grace. You don't purify yourself. God purifies you. He purifies your heart. He takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. This is the gospel. That Christ died, his blood was shed so that we would experience the new covenant. So God says in Psalm 73:1, God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. First Timothy 1:5, if, if you are pure in heart by God's grace, then it starts to work in your own life. So 1 Timothy 1:5 says this: Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Our goal, so here's a we were talking earlier about what's the goal of the pastor? Is it just to preach wickedness and warn them about judgment or is there more? Here's Paul's goal of the pastor and, and really of Christians. The goal of our instruction is love. That's the goal that our people would love. Where does love come from? From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, public and private. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They do public righteousness and private righteousness. They're justified and made righteous in God's sight first. Why are the pure in heart blessed, according to the verse? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? Who will they get? What's their, what's their reward? What's, what's the source of their happiness? They will what? See who? See God. That's the greatest goal of all. Revelation 22, four. This is the happy ending. You know, the Bible, you know where, and they shall live happily ever after, or they will live, and they live happily ever after. You know where that came from? It came from the Bible, came from Revelation 22, because that's the true story for every Christian. You will live happily ever after, because here's Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Night will be no more. God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever and ever on a new earth. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be happy. It is a happy land. And you are going there, and you will see God's face. That's why you're blessed, brothers and sisters. You're pure in heart, and you will see his face. And we get, do, we get, do we get to see glimpses of his face now in some covered measure in our lives, don't we? We sing, because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. Because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled, um, unveiled um, we see as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This comes by the Holy Spirit. So we see the glory of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18. We see God, and that's why you're blessed. That's why you're happy. So how is compassion tied to public righteousness? I already told you. The goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart. If you have a pure heart, you're going to do what to your neighbors? You're going to love them, right? You're going to love your society. You're going to love, your, you're going to love the nations. You're going to love missions. Even 2 Timothy 2, 21, 22, you'll be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work, not just evangelism, not just evangelism and conversion, not just warning them about the wickedness and judgment to come, and that's it. No, no. You'll be prepared for every good work. Amen. You'll pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
So as you do public righteousness, understand that your motives will be questioned by others. We're going to talk about persecution in verse 10. Your motives will be questioned by others. In current debates, I've seen faithful Christians, when, when faithful Christians have been talking about social justice, and they're defining it differently, some might call it biblical justice. I'm not talking about social justice in all the things that the world says social justice. I'm just talking about righteousness for society, according to God's standards. The Christians who are talking about that, I've seen them be accused of compromise, of being completely ensnared, there's a quote, completely ensnared in efforts to please the culture, believing the notion, quote, that if the church is going to reach the culture, it first needed to connect with the style and methods of secular pop culture or academic fads. Really? Is that really what these faithful brothers are doing? They're trying to conform to the world by talking about public righteousness? No, they're made for this. Jesus blessed us for this. He gave us a new heart for this. It's not to please the world. Now, some might want to please the world. I'll give him that. Maybe he's not talking about these people in particular, though he quotes them in his blog posts. They're not trying to please the world. They're just trying to live out the purity of our hearts that God has given us. Love from a pure heart, pursuing righteousness. Application. Church member, rest in Jesus' purifying work for you and celebrate it. Brothers and sisters, are you discouraged by the impurity of your heart? The sin in your heart? Let me encourage you. Jesus purifies you. Don't look in the mirror and try to fix yourself by yourself. Go back to the cross again and ask God for grace. You will have to purify yourself, but that is secondary. You need God, God's power. So brothers, let me encourage you. We, we do prayers of confession every week for a reason. God purifies you. Keep going to him. Keep repenting. You know the biggest way you change is not by just doing what's right. It's by re- genuinely repenting every time you sin and turning in that moment. That is the function and mechanism for most change in your life. The longer you wait to repent, the more you make excuses before you repent, the more you hide your sin and not repent, the longer it takes for you to grow. The quicker you repent, the quicker you grow. Church family, it says we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Who are those who call on, along, who are those who call on the Lord from a pure heart? Your fellow what? Church members. So who should we be pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with? All together as a church, let's go. Let's do this together. We're in this together as a church family. We're into loving our neighbors together as a church family. We share a life, we run together. We encourage each other. If you're not a Christian and you're feeling guilty, I have good news for you. God can cleanse your heart if you come to Jesus and repent from your sins. So realize Jesus blessed you and made you a person who does public righteousness so that you shine his gospel light in the world. Number three, the reconcilers do public righteousness. So number one was uh, the, Jesus makes you merciful or Jesus makes you compassionate in doing public righteousness. Point number two, Jesus makes you pure in heart to do public righteousness. Number three, Jesus makes you a reconciler doing public righteousness. Verse nine. So here, what, what, does, what does the world say? Here's what the world says. Happy are those, or blessed are those who say everyone is right and already at peace for they are the most open-minded and respectful. Blessed are those who say everyone is right and everyone's already at peace because they are the most open-minded and respectful of all views, not realizing that they're actually not honestly saying everyone is right, but only those who agree with them that everyone is right. And if you don't say everyone is right, you're actually wrong. Here's another wrong way of saying it. Happy are those who mind their own business because they live convenient and safe lives. Happy are those who mind their own business because they live convenient and safe lives. Wrong. Here's another wrong way of saying it. Here's a religious wrong way of saying it. Happy are the condemners, for they are just telling the truth as it is, and they can't force anyone to make peace anyways, right? Or happy are the silent prayer warriors. This is cutting really close to home now. Happy are the silent prayer warriors, for prayer without action still helps make peace among people. 
Prayer is good. He doesn't say happy are the prayer warriors here. He says happy are the peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? The Greek word here, the dictionary says, pertaining to endeavor to reconcile persons who have disagreements. Basic definition, right? Do you attempt to reconcile people who have disagreements? Do you make peace? Are you a reconciler? That's why I say um, Jesus makes you a reconciler. Do you reconcile those who have disagreements before God? Craig Blomberg again writes, as with the merciful, peacemakers focus on interpersonal relationships. Those who work for shalom, that's wholeness, you guys know what shalom means? What does shalom mean? Peace. That's wholeness and harmony. That's universal peace, not just personal peace. Shalom is peace on every level. Personally, universally, societally, interrelationally, with God, with everything. Those who work for shalom, wholeness and harmony, rather than strife and discord in all their aspects of life, and those who reconcile others to God and each other. So if you're a peacemaker, who, you, who do you want to make peace with? Who, when I, and if I see Francis and I want to make peace, who do I want to make her, who do I want her to have peace with first and foremost? Most important, who, with who? God, right? So we share the gospel, right? We want them to repent from their sins and have peace with God. If they're a Christian, we still want them to repent if they're sinning and have peace with God, right? If you're fighting with somebody else and I'm trying to help you, my main concern is your walk with God before your walk with that person. God first, always first, only first. But first is not all. Peacemaking is also making peace, make, making peace between who? People. So if there's an argument in the church, a disagreement in the church, a disagreement between this body of people and this body of people, what do peacemakers do? Peacemakers are a little crazy in the head. They run into the middle of the fire and they don't mind if they get burned because they're trying to put the fire out. They want peace in the midst of disagreement and strife and animosity. And so they say, hold on everyone, if you guys are fighting, are you guys both right with God? Because if you both were right with God, then you would both be right with each other. So if you guys are fighting, one of you, maybe both of you are not right with who? Right with God. One of you are not, at, when I say right, I don't mean justified. I mean at peace with God experientially. One of you are not in accord with God on this issue. And that's why there's war. So if I want to make peace, I want to help you guys both get on the same page with God so that you can get on the same page with each other because it shouldn't be your page or your page. It should be whose page? God's page. Now that might be this guy's page if he's on God's page or it might be this person. But a peacemaker goes into the middle of the fray and tries to make peace. That's public. But when I mean public, I'm not saying online. I'm saying like if it's between uh, Ben and Chris and I actually get into their argument to help them make peace, that's public. It's not just PJ makes peace in his heart and prays for peace. No, like PJ's actually getting involved and making peace between these brothers with each other and with God or groups of people, or whatever the case. Does that make sense? You guys tracking? So a, a, re, a peacemaker is a reconciler. And why are they blessed? Blessed are the reconcilers, the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. What does that mean? In the judgment day, you will be declared a son of God. Now, are you a son of God now? Yes. But what does it mean you're a son of God? Here, it's not talking about salvation exclusively, though it is that. It's talking about um, sonship in the New Testament, in the ancient world, was very... Obvious, like father, like son. So if your dad was a baker, you were a what? A baker. If your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was a musician, you were a musician. You were what your dad was, like father, like son. So if you're a peacemaker, why are you gonna be called the son of God? Because who's the ultimate peacemaker? God is the peacemaker, right? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. Ephesians 2, 13 and 22. Jesus comes into the hostility of this world and he dies on the cross for us to make peace with God and if you read Ephesians 2, also peace with who? With each other. Jews and Gentiles into one body making peace. Peace with God, peace with each other. God is the ultimate peacemaker. Sinners, when you sin, you declare war on God. Every personal sin is a personal declaration of war. And God comes and sends his son to die for you so that you can have peace with him and peace with each other. So if you're not a Christian, again, God is calling you to lay down your weapon. Have peace with him. He made you. He loves you.
but he will stomp on, he will judge you. Revelation 14, he will stomp on those grapes of wrath. He will crush them in hell forever if they do not repent and trust in Jesus because he is righteous and holy. But you don't have to go there. Put down your weapon now. Wave the white flag of surrender and peace. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and you will have peace. And then he'll make you a peacemaker. That's what he does. His people are peacemakers. That's what they do. Christians are the ones, the busybodies everywhere trying to make peace because there's tensions everywhere and they can't look away. God's, God's love in them is too strong for them to turn around. How's peacemaking tied to public righteousness? I said, if it's if you're just privately a peacemaker, you're not really making peace with anyone. To make peace, you actually have to get involved between people. Peacemaking demands you get involved in relationships. That means it has to go public. It cannot be just privately just you yourself in your heart. Peacemaking means you actually are involved in hard conversations. And this peace is what we have in the New Eden and in the Garden of Eden. Peace with God. Adam and Eve never having conflict. Can you imagine that? No sinful conflict between Adam and Eve. And then um, perfect harmony with the rest of creation. That's what we want. And so we speak the truth in love because it's not gonna happen until Christ comes again, but we wanna keep speaking the truth in love and reconciling people as much as possible to God and to each other. Where do you see this in the Bible? Nathan rebukes David for his adultery and murder because he wants, to, he wants David to be restored to peace with God and peace with his reign. Paul rebukes Peter in Galatians 2 for eating only with Jews because he wants peace with God, for Peter to restore his peace with God, not position like he loses salvation, but like relationally, and then peace among the church. Moses confronts Pharaoh because he's a peacemaker and Pharaoh's at war with God. Peter gospelizes the crowd in Jerusalem at Pentecost because all of them have cruci- are guilty of crucifying Jesus and he wants them to be at peace with God, so he preaches the gospel. When you do church discipline, you excommunicate someone. That's peacemaking because you're hoping to call them to repent so that they would be at peace with God. When, you, when a church member here or a friend gossips to you and complains about somebody else to you and you don't receive that gossip, but you stop it right there and you refuse to pass on gossip and slander of somebody else's character, you are making peace. You're preventing strife. Christians are peacemakers because Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And if you're a son of God, you're like God. And if you're like, like the Father, then you make peace because that's what he did. So brothers, see the need, feel compassion, enjoy your pure and new heart in Jesus, and then go help people find peace with God and with others and with all of creation. You know what I mean by saying peace with the rest of creation? Does anyone know what that means? That might, be not, that might not be um, clear to you. So you, we can understand peace between people, right? But when I mean peace be- with creation, it's like, Let's just say I'm addicted to drugs. My tension is not with another person necessarily. My tension is with God made creation for us to what? Enjoy. But once that creation starts to enslave us, right? Or if, let's say I have a lazy work ethic and I'm, I'm not going to work. I'm just, and I'm able-bodied and able to go to work. I just have a poor work ethic. My, my lack of peace is not necessarily with people. It's my poor work ethic. And so you're gonna come and make peace. You're gonna help me make peace with the way God designed this world to be. Does that make sense? So you're making peace on all, it's discipleship, really, right? It's, it's making peace between God, each other, and the rest of creation all the time. Making sure everyone's living in harmony with the way God designed things to be. So brothers, let's, let's, um, let's ask forgiveness from God when we haven't been making peace. Let's ask forgiveness from people when we sin against them to make peace. Let's make peace in our membership and among our church relationships. Let's make peace between Christians and tribes of Christians and other groups in Christianity as much as biblically possible. Let's make peace at home and at school and at work and in the neighborhood. If you feel weak, I don't want to get involved in these relationships. It's hard. Anyone feel it hard to make peace? It is. The good news is God will help you make peace and give you relationships to jump into. To the society, again, I, I say it once again, we will make peace, but it always begins for us. Peace with who? God. The society doesn't like that, right? Why do you always have to bring Jesus into it? Can't you just do the other good stuff? I will do the other good stuff. But Jesus must remain central. Your eternity is most important. We care about all suffering, John Piper says, especially eternal suffering. Amen. But we do care about other suffering as well. It's not either or. 
One's more important than the other, but it's both, right? We will do society. We want to be the best neighbors we can be. We want to be the, if you're a citizen of the United States, we want to be the best American citizens we can be. If you're an immigrant here and you're not a citizen here, but you live here, you want to be the best neighbor you can be here as an immigrant, right? For God's glory. But God is always central and number one, not the society, because we love the society. All right, let's go to the last one. The persecuted do public righteousness. Jesus not only makes, so Jesus makes you merciful or compassionate. Jesus makes you pure in heart. Jesus makes you a reconciler, a peacemaker. He blessed you and made you that way. And then Jesus blessed and made you, this doesn't sound like blessing, Jesus blessed and made you persecuted for doing public righteousness. Philippians 1, 27 through 30 says that persecution is a gift, a grace from God. We don't think of it as grace. So here's what we say. The irreligious say, happy are those who are persecuted for their political and social affiliation because it proves that they're sold out for their social political cause. So if the conservatives are here and they're persecuted by the liberals, then they're like, yeah, that means I'm a real conservative because they're mad at me. Or if you're a liberal and the conservatives are persecuting, yeah, I'm a real liberal because, look, I'm real sold out to cause because the conservatives are persecuting me. And so happy are you when the opposite side is persecuting you because you're really sold out to your cause. It's not what Jesus is saying. Another religious lie would be blessed are the safe for they are safe. <laughs> Jesus says blessed are the persecuted. But sometimes blessed are the safe for they are safe. Another religious lie would be, blessed are those who can do enough righteousness to not feel guilty, but not too much to offend someone to the point where they get pushed back in opposition. That's more practical, right? Blessed are those who can do enough righteousness not to feel guilty, but not too much to offend someone and get pushed back in opposition. No, that's not what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. Public righteousness, personal and public righteousness, because for the kingdom of heaven is what? Is theirs, right? So what does this mean? When you try to make peace, if you care about people's needs, right? So just notice how this all fits together. When you care about somebody's needs and you have a pure heart, it's not for approval of others, it's not for recognition, you just have a pure heart before God and you care about people's needs and then you try to make peace between them and God and them and each other, does everyone want peace all the time? Is everyone gonna humbly receive your peacemaking efforts? No, we have this thing called pride, right? And when you step on their pride, when you step on an idol, guess what you get? Pushback. You get defense. People will defend their idols. Until they're on the same page as God, they're worshiping an idol in that issue. And when they're worshiping an idol in that issue, they will defend their idol and they will push back. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when people push back on you and oppose you because of righteousness. Namely, the gospel first, evangelism, but also beyond the gospel and evangelism, all other kinds of peacemaking that you do. Blessed are you. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is what? The kingdom of heaven is what? It's theirs. It's yours. So how is this tied to, is this tied to public righteousness? Yes. If you are not publicly engaging in peacemaking and public righteousness, you will never be persecuted, right? Because you're private. But if you're public, it will come out. And so if you're a gospelizer and disciple maker, you'll be persecuted for gospelizing and teaching and discipleship. So Paul says, have I become your enemy in telling you the truth? He says that to the church. The church was, was attacking him for telling the truth. And he says, am I your enemy for trying to make peace? By telling you the truth? I'm not your enemy, I'm on your side. All right. Application, if you aren't a Christian, if you're not offending anyone, then one of two things are happening. Either everyone you're making peace with is receiving it, so you're just the ultimate perfect peacemaker, or you're not publicly doing righteousness and peacemaking. If no one is offended by you, then you're either not trying to make peace with people or everyone is, is getting peaceful. So be encouraged and understand that as you are poor in spirit, humble, mourning, hungering, compassionate, pure in heart, peacemaking, if you're opposed, you're on the right track. You're walking with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Church family, as we suffer together, let's encourage each other because even though we know we're blessed, it does get discouraging, doesn't it? In making peace and getting opposition from people, it is discouraging. Church, broader universal church, let us be careful not to attack each other, but clearly confront sin 
Let's be biblical and define sin biblically and confront sin. Don't get personal and start name-calling or merely attacking others' motives. Non-Christians, I was talking to a non-Christian this week in my house, in my living room, who's trying to sell me home security. I was trying to sell her eternal security. <laughs> one of the things she said to me was, um, one of the reasons I can't be, be a, a Christian is because they have to insist that they're the only right way. And I said, you're in home security. You're telling me about this fire alarm. If there was a fire burning, and I really believe there's a fire, and I was pleading with you to get out of the house, would you be offended? And what if you were like, no, I don't believe I have a fire. Everyone has their own beliefs. Everyone's right in their own way. If you think there's a fire, there's a fire. If you don't think there's a fire, there's not a fire. And I'm like, no, there's a fire in your house. I could see it behind you as you're talking about the balcony. There's a fire in your house. You need to get out. No, no, that's your beliefs, not mine. If you're not a Christian, understand this. The reason why we confront you, we might be jerks sometimes, and we need to repent from that. We might be arrogant. We need to repent from that and ask you for forgiveness. But when we're being gentle, the reason why we still confront you is because we want you to enjoy peace. We love you. We want you to have peace with God and peace with others. So please come to Jesus Christ. All right, so as I close here, does the call, here, I have to close with this one last question because this is the whole debate about does public righteousness, is that the mission or whatever? Here's my question to you. I want you to answer this out loud. Does the call to public righteousness, first with God and then with others, personally, pervasively in society and the whole world, does the call to public righteousness contradict the Great Commission, yes or no? Does it contradict the Great Commission, yes or no? No. Should we only preach the gospel and do nothing else, yes or no? No. The Great Commission making disciples and teaching them to obey, that focuses and frames our public righteousness. So if you're gonna make them disciples, that focuses your, your public righteousness to, to aim at conversion first, right? Gospel first. And then it frames your public righteousness to make sure that you don't lose the gospel in doing all the other good things you do. So here's my answer. The Great Commission does not contradict public righteousness. No, we should not pr only preach the gospel. The Great Commission focuses and frames our public righteousness by the priority of the gospel and the authority of the whole counsel of God. The whole thing. Summary. Jesus saved and secured and blessed you to do public righteousness as you are merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, and persecuted. So brothers and sisters, here's my call to you. Rejoice. Rejoice in your eternal blessing. Rejoice that your blessing is secure. Rejoice that you have a Savior, a Messiah, who has made you and is making you a channel of eternal blessing through personal and public righteousness, which has at the tip of the spear the, convert, the converting and clear gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of all sinners. If you fail to rejoice in this and rest in Christ, you will neglect your neighbors and the community and the blessing that they can get from you. If you fail to rejoice in this, you will run out of gas. You'll get burned out and you won't continue. If you fail to rejoice in Christ in this, you'll be discouraged in your calling and God will be dishonored by your passivity when he made you to shine his gospel light. But if you rejoice and rest in Christ's transforming work in you, his saving work in you, you will love your neighbors and your community even when they get mad at you. You will honor God in shining his gospel light. And you will feel God's comfort, God's strength, and most of all, what I love, God's pleasure as you humbly and feebly engage. Blessed are those, blessed are you, who do public righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Father, take this word and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And yet we're so ready to confess that we will sin against you. We don't want to, but when we do, we pray that we would repent, that we would be poor in spirit, that we would mourn over our sin, that we would humble ourselves before you and hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness, that we would rest on the justifying work of Christ's righteousness, and then we would rest on the transforming work of his righteousness in us. We pray that when we sin, Lord, that you would continue to shape us so that we would be merciful and caring the way you are merciful and caring. We pray that you would make us pure in heart the way that you have changed our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would make us peacemakers, not passive, but lovingly 
assertive, lovingly risk-taking. And help us, Lord, to rest in you when we are persecuted and when we get pushback from Christians, from non-Christians, as we give them the gospel, as we call them to repent from wickedness and warn them of eternal judgment, and as we seek to help them to obey everything Christ commanded, even as Christians. Help our church. Help us each individually. Lord, you know that this is a burden on my heart for the greater evangelical world right now. We pray that you'd even help your Christians in other churches, pastors, churches, denominations who are confused on this topic. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.